his disciples go to an upper room in Jerusalem that had been reserved for them to celebrate the Passover. We talked about how in that setting the table probably was not like we typically see in the artwork, the Euro traditional European artwork that often is capturing this moment of the Last Supper. They weren't sitting on a table, a long table with chairs. There was probably something more in line with the Eastern way of Jesus's day. In fact, we're sure of it, that there was a low-lying low table that would have been rectangular pro probably in nature. Uh, they would have had seats around it, 13 spaces in this case, but they wouldn't have been a traditional seat like a chair. It would have been more like a, a mat uh, with cushions, pillows that you could also recline on while you were eating, lying down, reclining on your left hand, eating with your right. You see them spread around the table in the center, most likely Jesus in the middle place as the, get, as the host, I should say, and to his right and left, the more honored positions as it would have been traditionally. We know that on Jesus' right was John. Pretty, pretty confident about it, as what we'll see here. The other, on the left, it does seem that it was Judas on his left. And so here is the picture of, that we see. Now, Jesus had early on given them a lesson, quickly. Remember, they had come into that room very divided. They had come in fractured, disunified. There was tension, there was rivalry, there was competition. There was arguments as to who would be the greatest when Jesus set up his kingdom. They had come in in a very divided fashion. It didn't help that when they came into the room, they started probably to argue about who got to sit where, why this one got the seat of honor. Who got, it, was, it wasn't a great atmosphere, we know about it. On top of that, Jesus um, knew that there was also something else happening, that in the heart of one of his disciples, there was a deep level of damage. And in fact, he had already made a decision, this disciple, to betray the Lord and had already begun to negotiate what that might look like. And whatever his motives or reasons were, scholars and others have, theologians have debated as to what Judas was really up to when he did it. But the bottom line was by the time they get to this meal, he's already involved in this process of betraying the Lord. So that leads us to that 21st verse. And we see here that Jesus has said these things because what happens is, you, again, he gives them one illustration to address their division. He gets down and he, they, none of them had washed the feet. And he, he does this, takes on the role of a servant. He washes all their feet. There's this interaction with Peter that occurs. And we, we talked a lot about that. But that was designed to get at this root issue of division and self-seeking and stubborn pride. Jesus says, do you know what I've done? I've given you an example, a lesson. I hope you learn from this lesson. And I think that cut into the division. I think it brought them together. But there was still that one issue lurking that had been unaddressed. And Jesus alludes to it when he says, not all of you are clean. There's someone here that is out of harmony with the rest of us. Finally, he quotes some scriptures and the meal goes on. And it seems like everybody's having a, good, a pretty good time. And Jesus interrupts that happy moment by saying explicitly, one of you is going to betray me. That's the 21st verse. It says here that Jesus said these things. He was troubled in his spirit. It, it bothered him. There were things I think he wanted to say, 
but he felt like this other issue needed now to be addressed one way or the other. And he was troubled in his spirit, and he cried out, and he said, Truly I say to you, one of you shall betray me. Now, he doesn't start out by saying Judas. Now, we know what happens at that time. When you get Matthew's account and you compare it with John's account, you get different nuances of the same event. It's sort of like I, I talk about this. It's like looking at a piece of art, and you come at it from a different direction. You see a piece of it or a side of it that you wouldn't have seen before. So one, one text or one passage is looking at it from a certain perspective. Another is like coming around and seeing it from a different perspective. If you bring them together, you get a fuller picture of the completeness of what was going on. In Matthew's gospel, he says that when Jesus said, one of you is, a, a, is going to betray me, that instead of, ironically, all of them beginning to look around the room to trying to figure out who it was, that one of the reactions that was somewhat unusual was that all of them in this moment of, of real honesty there was something, it must have been something about the way Jesus said it that caused them to look inside their own heart. And when they did, many of them asked the question, is it I, Lord? Is, is there something, is it me? And we talked about how when we draw close to the Lord, oftentimes we do have a better idea of how much we need Him. That there, there comes the loss of any sense of, we, we know our own heart. The closer we get to God, the more we know we need a Savior. And I think the less likely we are to be judgmental because we see our own need and our own wound. I mean, that's how it's supposed to be. But clearly, one of them, Peter, comes to the conclusion after he looks inside, maybe after Jesus told him, no, I don't know, we don't know for sure when Peter came to this conclusion, but clearly he did. He came to the conclusion that he was not the betrayer. And he, but he wanted to know who it was. Some people have speculated the reason that Peter wanted to know who it was is because Peter wanted to deal with the one who it was. And we can honestly say that murder was not beyond him. We know a few hours later he will pull out his sword and he will seek to defend Jesus as he said he would under the death. And he will swing that sword and he will not swing it to simply do a, a give a warning. He will swing it as designed to hit and to hit the mark. And in fact, we know that he would have perished that night if Jesus had not said to him, put the sword away. You don't have any idea what's really happening here. And the, and the denial of Peter follows that confrontation where he actually had stood up to defend the Lord. So it was in Peter to, to it wasn't beyond him that he wanted to find this traitor. But the thing is, he, because he, of what has already happened that night, he clearly is being pictured. It says here that the disciples looked at one another, look at verse 22, and they were perplexed about whom he spoke. They wanted to know. It was, it was bothering them that somebody was a betrayer on their t in, this t in this room, and yet Jesus didn't initially answer the question, say, well, who, it is you. He didn't turn to Judas and go, it's you, Judas. And they wanted to know. Peter really wanted to know. But he was afraid to ask. And we had fun with this last week because it's one of those humorous parts of the Scripture where you really do get a picture of their personalities. He so badly wants to ask the question, who is it, Lord? But he's a little bit gun-shy because of what happened the last, just a few hours back when he had this confrontation with Jesus and made the big show about, I'm, you're not washing my feet, and, and he stood up to the Lord, and of course he got, he got used as an illustration. And as a result, I don't think Peter was interested in bringing, being, bringing this up and being used as an object lesson again. So one of the real clever moments here is what the Bible tells us is that Peter, so badly wanting to know, but afraid to ask Jesus himself, starts to motion, it says, 
motions over to John. And again, now John would have been reclining on his left, so think when it says leaning on his bosom, just think about the fact that his head is leaning back towards Jesus, who would have been on his left, and, Jesus, and John is to Jesus' right. And it says that Peter, and you see the picture, Peter is there wanting to know, kind of reluctant, clearly, to ask himself. He decides that he's going to ask his young friend, who seems to always get better responses from Jesus than he does, <laughs> to ask for him. And so the picture is of Peter, somewhere, wherever he was sitting, motioning to John to ask him who it is that's going to I will follow, ask him who it is, who's going to do it. I'm not going to do that. You don't know. Ask him who it is. Ask him who it is. Now, you see this whole thing going, it's very, it's, it's, it's real. And they're having this sort of movement back and forth between them. And finally, I guess John relents, and he wants to know, I guess, too. But he finally says, Lord, and you can see this, it says that he leaning backwards. So this idea of, of him just in a very casual way, leaning backwards and saying, Lord, who is it? And as he's doing that, to his surprise, or not, Jesus says, you want to know who it is? I'll tell you. I'll show you. It's the one when I dip this bread and I hand it to. That's the one. And it says that Jesus dips the bread and he turns to his left, it would seem. You know, typically when a host handed a guest bread, it was the supreme statement of honor. And Jesus turns to his left, and he, he hands, and it says, the, the picture is the bread is there in his hand, it, it's there, and Judas is there. Now, we don't know for sure if this is the moment. We know Judas asked this question, we're not absolutely certain when he asked it, but we do know that Judas some point, and I think it's right here, says, because they had different times, different ones have been asking, Lord, is it me? And Matthew says that Judas says, Lord, is it me? And there is this moment, and I picture the two of them right there with the bread, and I almost see the bread as a branch. It, it is a reaching it is a moment, is one last reach for his wayward friend and disciple, his lost one. He says, one I've lost. And he's reaching for him. And there is this moment where I don't think any, it, I think there's time still. The choices that have been made, yes, were bad, but it's, there's still time here. You know what? We know that Jesus, Jesus was going to die. There's no question about that. There were already had been many plots on his life. The chief priests and the Pharisees had already determined to kill him. They happened to find a willing participant that was going to make it neat and work well. But it had been in their heart. In fact, there were a couple of times where it would have happened. It says, except Jesus withdrew himself. There is an appearance of a super, kind of a beyond normal human component to it where Jesus withdraws from the situation, knowing where it would leave, saying basically, this is not my hour, and my death is not now, and I'm leaving. And he, he moves out of the situation where it would have ended in this way. So, I, so we need to banish at some level the idea that Judas, oh, he has to, he, ha, he has no way out. I still see through this whole thing, Jesus reaching. Finally, this is the last reach. This is the moment. You must decide, my friend. What will you do? 
And it's this moment where he takes the bread. John says he takes the bread. He takes the bread. And in this moment, he takes it, and it's almost as if he's, he makes his mind. I've got, how, why? I've gone too far already. There's no turning back now. This will all work out for the best. You should have. I mean, many people have speculated, what's going on with Judas? One thing we know is that the Bible is very explicit about this. It says that now after the piece of bread, notice verse 27. Now after the piece of bread, it says Satan entered him. And in that moment, he takes it. Basically, Jesus can see what's happening like a, like a, a man swept out into the sea, into the tide. Like a, he's just overwhelmed by it. There is this decision made. He falls off the edge. He makes his mind. I'm going with it. No, he takes the bread. Jesus says, now that you've made your choice, if this is what you do, it, do what you will do. Go, do it quickly. What thou do, do it quickly in the older English. No stopping you now. Go. And it says that, that Judas flees, and vividly, that 30th verse, into the darkness. His will mixed with Satan's delight, Judas moving into the night. There is something there. But notice the other two, the, it says in verses 28 and 29 that they didn't actually understand, everybody didn't actually, we're thinking, oh, they all got what was happening here, everybody sees it, there he is, Judas. Nobody actually saw it, nobody understood really. John is probably figuring out what is going on. You've got to remember, nobody, when they had said, when Jesus had said originally one of you is going to betray me, it wasn't like they all turned, and again we mentioned this, and looked at Judas. Nobody was saying he's the guy. He had been very calm and very collected in this whole night as well. Throughout this whole time. Maybe some people have said it because he, was, he felt disappointed in Jesus. It's hard to say. One thing we know is this. The disciples only heard what you do. Hurry up and do it is what they heard. And in their mind, they're hearing that. They, and then John tells us in verse 29 that actually some of them thought that Judas, who was the treasurer of the group, he kept the money bag. They call it the money box here. He was the one that was in charge of the funds. And we also know that Judas had, in the past, we're told in one of the other Gospels, that Judas had, at certain times, somewhere along the way, decided that it was okay to steal a little bit on the side. That it says that he was a thief. And there's something about that. I've often thought, you know, I wonder what it was like that first time when Judas decided to keep the coin. It's just a coin. It's just a little bit for himself. And he didn't get caught. I didn't care. What, you know, I have to, little things open the door for bigger things. And that's why I do think a lot of times the real key here is for us to be responsive to God over sometimes things that are very little and seemingly not that big of a deal, but they're a big deal if the Lord is trying to get our attention. <coughs> Let us not be so quick to write off something, oh, it's just a coin. Who'll miss it? You understand that it is very possible that the little door that opened up becomes the big door down the line. The little room becomes, paves the way for the big betrayal. I, oh, look, they think he's going off into the night. They think, they're, they told here, they said, they, oh, he's probably going to buy some supplies. What's that? Jesus saying, go, do quit, hurry up, finish your deed. Oh, he's going to go get some supplies. We must be running out of stuff. Or yeah, of course, Judas is going to go buy some stuff. Or he's going to give an extra offering. It would have been customary to the poor on this night or with the Passover extra that we might have. There different ideas are running through them as to what it was. But Jesus knows. And he, and he does something. 
it's almost like he, it's like the Lord breathes deep, if I can put it this way. He just, it's almost as if the room has been cleansed, in, in a way. Because his, his conversational tone shifts. It's almost as if he's saying, this is done now. All things are moving as they as I knew they would, but there was, listen, he, he says, now he turns to his disciples. And this passage makes it clear, verse 31, that when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus then turns to them and he says, now listen to me, now the Son of Man is glorified. Now the Son of Man is about to be glorified. He, he is moving into his hour of glory. Notice this, and, and God is going to be glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. It almost sounds like, well, Jesus is saying a couple of things that don't really make totally, totally sense, but he would talk like this every now, now and then, and he's going to glorify him immediately. That the glory that I'm entering into now is a real glory, and it's about to happen. And everything that I have been born to do is about to be accomplished. And what amazes me is, he doesn't say, the hour, basically, the time of my cross is near. The time of my suffering is near. Uh, he says, the time of my glory is near. He saw what he was moving into as ultimately an expression of the glory of God. He saw behind the cross what it would mean. It would mean the, the end of something in the beginning of a new movement of God. It would be Genesis again. It would be new beginning. And, it, and the resurrection would verify the reality of God's acceptance of the sacrifice that he would be the ultimate lamb. As John had said, the different John, the one they call the Baptist, John the Baptist, the forerunner, had said, behold the lamb of God, the ultimate Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is him. Now that, three and a half years later, he says, this is the moment where the lamb will take away the sin of the world. And it is the hour of my glory, not of my death and defeat. You need to understand that because it's not going to look that good, my friends. In fact, he says, notice, he says, I'm, I'm going, he says, I'm not going to be with you in this way anymore. Notice verse 30, 33. In fact, he makes a statement. He says, you know what? It's a very interesting the selection of the words that Jesus uses right here in verse 33 because he doesn't say, brothers, listen to me. Or my, my disciples, hear me out. He he uses a term that you would use for like a, a little child. And these are grown men. Some, rugged, some of them very rugged, physical men. Others of them older than him. And he, and, he, and he turns to them and he says, he uses this term. He says, listen to me. And he says, my little children. My little ones. A very tender, unusual designation by Jesus. It, it, it is not a common way that he talked to them. My little ones, I need you to listen to me. These are grown men. Listen to me. It's almost like he's thinking, because I know what about, is about to happen. It's going to rock. It's going to, you're, you have no idea what's about to happen and what's in you and how hard it is going to be to get through this. I've tried to tell you. I've tried to teach you. I've tried to prepare you. But what's about to happen is beyond you. In fact, you can't come with me. I've got to walk this one alone. And you need to be okay with that. In fact, he says in that 33rd verse, not only that, but the way that we've been together is going to change forever. It's never going to be exactly the way it has been now. It's going to be different, not, not worse, different. 
In a little while, I won't be with you in this way anymore. It was a very tender word. It was a very tender moment. It was almost as if he's saying to, to the 11 who were left, you need to stay with me now. And then sensing, perhaps, that not only what was going to happen was going to test each one of them personally, but also that it was going to test them together. And they had been together and now already violated at a deep level. One of them completely fallen away, going his own way. And the rest very vulnerable. He saw them like sheep in a way, extraordinarily vulnerable and defenseless for the spiritual things that were going to transpire. And he says to them, I need you to listen. I need you to listen to me. Um, hear me is a very tender word. He says, I need you to listen to me. He says, I... I'm giving you a new command. Uh, I have a commandment that I want you to keep. I want you to remember it. A new commandment, and the way I remember learning it as a boy, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. I give you a new, a new command. And what is it? I want, this is a command. You love one another. You, you came in fighting. They came in struggling for position and status, and they were divided. And he says, I want you to remember, and, and he says, I want you to remember the new commandment. What is, now, that really wasn't a totally a new commandment. And part of them would have said, what do you mean a new commandment? I mean, think about it. The first great commandment was what? Hear, O Israel, you know, God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And when the second commandment was, and they all knew it from their youth up, Love your neighbor as yourself. It had to do with loving people. There was a vertical component to it. Love God, but let that love for God spread itself out and let it, let it touch others. Let it be lived out relationally. And it wasn't, they understood it. Love God, love others. What was, the, what was so new about it? What was new about A new commandment I've given to you, that you love one another. Here's the new. As I have loved you. Now that's new. That's different. What he is saying is the kind of love, what that love is to look like, I am giving you a pattern of what loving looks like. And as I have loved you, as I have given myself to you, as I have given myself to God for you, you are to give yourself to one another. It's a very beautiful word. And then he concludes it by saying, and let me say this to you, that but this is the, and then he turns to me and says, now listen to me, by this shall everybody know, verse 30, what is it, 34? 35, by this shall everybody know, all men know, everyone know, that you are my true, truly they will know that you are my followers. How? By, by the love that you, some of whom are rivals and don't like each other all the time, how you learn to love one another, even when things aren't going to go well. This will be the mark of my reality at work in your life. This is the true mark of a disciple. A very sublime word. So how do we apply this? One way I want to suggest is by understanding that there will be times when our love will be tested. And I just was thinking about this because there are moments in our life where people like, just like Jesus was hurt by Judas, people will, there are times where we will be hurt. And Jesus was betrayed at the very deepest levels. A lot of times we say, well, you know, Jesus was different. He didn't feel, he was the son of God, you know, he, 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 but he had a, it hurt him. He, in fact, when he quotes earlier in that chapter, when he, when he quotes out of the Older Testament and he says, my own familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting a verse, but that verse is not just like pulled out there because he's trying to illustrate a point and he's using an Old Testament reference. He is saying it because it captured his feeling. 
And he's saying, my own familiar, and he's quoting David. He's saying, my own familiar friend who sat at my table, who ate with me, who I loved, he has lifted up his heel against me. That was, it just added to it. And, well, you know, and, and yet, one of the things, uh, I, why I said it was a test, because Jesus did not allow that wound to affect how he loved the rest of his disciples. He loved them all the more, if it were possible. And I thought, how we respond to the inevitable hurt and pain of life, and yes, sometimes even the betrayal of life, which will happen, there's a lot of things that happen that aren't fair. And that this side of eternity, we live in a broken world that doesn't explain everything, but explains a lot of it. We are hurt, and we do hurt. And in these places, the question oftentimes is going to be, is are we going to allow that to define us? Are we going to grow out of it? Are we going to allow God to work with us through it? Are we going to learn to draw things from Him to become more Christ-like through this process of what looks like a lot like a cross? Are we going to be, as the old phrase goes, are we going to get bitter or are we going to get better? I've seen people go both ways. Jesus models for us a way. Love one another as I have loved you. And I have loved you even when you disappoint me. And I love you now knowing that every one of you is going to deny me. And everything we've meant and had you will throw it away and run. But I love you unto the end. And our love will survive. And it will flourish. And you will, it is powerful. And so, and, and so close behind that is this idea that really our love, and we'll call this our second thought, that our love for one another really is, is, you know, Christ's love. I mean, the way to make Christ's love known to the world is through our love, Jesus said, one to another. And I've often thought about this, you know, because it, it really caught me. I don't know why. It was just, I was, listen, I was thinking about it. I, I go, boy, Lord, what you're saying is this is the mark of a disciple. And I remember thinking, somebody wrote about this a while ago. They said, the mark of a disciple is the love for, for one. I go, for one another. And I, and I thought, boy, you know, if I were... If, I were, if someone were to ask me, what do you think the mark of a disciple, a true indicator of a follower of Jesus is, I wouldn't have said what he said. I, I wouldn't have. I would have said, no, the mark of the disciple, and think about what is not said. The mark of the disciple, he says, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples, by the way you love the world, by the way you love others, um, by the way that uh, we treat the poor or the social justice that we are involved in or the way in which we respond to our enemies or those who hurt us. Now, he had talked about all of those things before, but he doesn't say that. And you know how I feel about the call, the, the call we have as a people reaching out to see people come to know the Lord is, is, a, is the driving value of who we are, a significant part of why we exist. And yet what does Jesus say? He says, by this shalom, it's a very sobering, penetrating word. He says, yes, it's true. You, we, are to, we are to love the lost, love the world. That's why he's giving himself. We certainly are to have a, a heart for the, for the poor and the outcast and to be open to forgiving even our, as Jesus models our enemies. But he says the foundational love at the end of the day, the foundational issue, he says, the key issue is the love that you exhibit to one another. That, he says, this it, by this shall all know that you are truly my followers. Not even by the good deeds you do or what you know,
but by the way that you learn to love one another and work through your differences and try to fight for these relationships and stay. And you guys think about it, they, they could have easily pulled away afterwards, but they came together. They come together. And this idea of loving one another through our offenses, this is, by the way, why you, we, this scripture cannot be fulfilled isolated. It only is fulfilled in community. It can't, it, love for one another. Think about what he was talking about. He was talking about a group of 12, now 11. This is the love. This is where you work it out at this level. This level. Don't, don't say you do good stuff for me, but you can't stand one another. You deal with that. Don't say you love me and you're my follower, but then when you get alone with each other, you undermine and cut and leave ones behind. You go, you fight for one another. Think about it. I think he saw Peter there. I think there's something there. The guy's gonna, Peter was so close to Judas in the sense of what he almost did. We're going to see it in the weeks after Easter. After Easter. It's so close. It was not that far away. You love your brother. I think John heard it clear. You love him sacrificially. And be, this will be a, a, the third idea. That the, the Christian love that we have is to bear the, mark, the marks and the mark of Christ. That is, it is to look sacrificial and selfless at, the, at its core. At its core, it is sacrificial and selfless in nature. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to get it right. It doesn't mean we're always going to handle it right. It doesn't mean we're always going to treat it right. What he was getting at, he was saying, get it, remember this, that other, the other things that I've asked you to do, if, if you don't do this, if you don't learn how to love the people I've given you to love and, and called you to love and serve, then, you, you, then the other things will be undermined by the foundational the foundational love that has been neglected and ignored, and, it will, and you will be revealed as a fraud. Truly to reflect me, start here. Start here. That's what he says. There's a sacrificial component. It's going to challenge us. It's going to stretch us. It means it's not about me. It means it's not about what I want all the time. It's, that's what we talk about. There's something to die on. We call it a cross. And maybe dying on that means not always going the way that is easiest for me. But it's the way that brings life and not death. A death that brings life. I wonder if that's part of what Jesus meant when he said, if you want to truly find life, you must be willing to lose it. You know, I, had a, I was reading, and I don't, I don't really usually share like little stories too much. But I'm, I'm going to close with this. Because I, read a, I remember reading a story that talked about sacrificial love. And for some reason, it touched me. And, you know, it's one of those things where you, get t you find yourself touched emotionally on it. And, I, and so I, re I remember reading it. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to share it because I think it's an illustration of sacrificial love. Let me just read it to you. This is from Anne Lamott. I, I believe she says that there was an eight-year-old boy and she was talking about this boy as an how he illustrated love for her. Now, listen. There was an eight-year-old boy who had a younger sister who was dying of leukemia, and he was told that without a blood transfusion, she was going to die. His parents explained to him that his blood was probably compatible with hers, and if so, he could be the blood donor. And so they asked him if they could test his blood. They did. They checked it, and sure enough, um, it was a good match. And so then they asked him if he would consider giving his little sister his blood. 
that it could be her only chance of living. And they were a little bit caught off guard when he said he needed to think about it for the night. And so the next morning, he came to them, and when they checked on him, he said he was willing to donate his blood. And so they took him to the hospital where he was put on a gurney beside his six-year-old sister, and both of them were hooked up to the IVs, and, and a nurse started to withdraw the blood, and, and they talked about how um, the blood started to go from the one to the other. I don't know how, how that works, but you can get the picture of the two of them side by side and the blood flowing out of one to the other. And as the boy lay on his gurney in silence while the blood dripped into his sister, the doctor comes over to see how he's doing. And then she says the boy, he opened up his eyes and he asked, okay, but how soon until I start to die? And you understand that? How soon until I start to die? He's, th he's thinking, donate my blood. I'm giving everything I got. I'm dying. Basically, he's thinking, they're asking me, do I want to give my life for her? Let me think about it overnight. Very powerful. When do I start to die? You want to talk about sacrificial love. Greater love has no man, Jesus said, than a man give his life for his friend. Jesus did what the little guy was intending to do. He gave his blood. He gave his life that we might live. That might sound simple, but it really hits the core of the issue, doesn't it? We live through his blood. We live through his life. And we are called, in light of that, to live sacrificially in this life. And we're not been asked to die. As far as I can tell, so far, there are some people, different parts of the world, followers of Jesus, who to follow him means to possibly die. But we have not been asked to die. We have been asked to live increasingly like him. And that may mean dying to some things. Lord, I pray that as we make our way into Easter, as we think about what it means to look at the cross, I pray that you would work in our lives continually this great truth of what it means to live sacrificially. When do I start to die? Lord, when, what does it mean to give so that others may live? What does it mean, Lord, to follow in your steps? What does it mean? What does it look like? Lord, let's take it from just the big places and bring it into the small. Lord, I ask that you keep working in our heart, Lord. Keep working. Teach us to, to love better, to live better, to be better, to be more like you, to apply our hearts in this way. I, I really ask that, Lord, as we move into this week, speak to us about what it means to live in the cross and then to live in the life. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.